here in South Africa. It is dedicated to those individuals and community groups that are supporting both the formal and informal processes that are shaping our cities and our spaces. In today's Talking Transformation podcast, we're going to hear from three very different personalities. The four of us you're going to hear from have got at least three things in common. We're all town planners by trade. We've all worked together in the same metropolitan planning team. And each of us, at one point or another, have had to consider an alternative approach to the theory and the practical skills taught to us at school, in tertiary education and during the course of our careers. First up, Klaus Rabe, a colleague who's been constantly challenging himself and his fellow professionals to take our skills and tools into the modern age. Klaus has consistently pushed the boundaries and consistently argued that the complexity of the work that we do requires a scientific approach and basis. He very much embodies a new new wave built environment professional using an evidence-based approach to planning to think about policy and decision making. He now utilizes those skills as a gun for hire in the private sector working for the Palmer Development Group. Jaco Petzer has become one of the leading spatial data analysts in the country. He has put together a number of world-leading approaches to big data sets and directed a series of land use and spatial models to support decision-making and policy setting in the city of Cape Town. He's commandeered the largest servers known to man. He has run the numbers from valuations to zoning, from infrastructure capacities to movement patterns. He very much embodies the oracle. Uh, in terms of knowing what's going on and understanding how we can use that information to inform our decision making. In the end he'll tell you it's all about land use, people and buildings. But how we understand these three variables and their vast and complex nature, the formal, the informal, demographics, the typologies and so on, is where the magic starts to happen. Last but certainly not least we speak to Eloise Rousseau. Eloise is currently based in Hong Kong in a very different living environment for the past year. We'll hear from her about the change in that lifestyle and urban environment and ultimately in her expectations and skill sets. She's moved from the challenging urban environment and sweeping backdrop of Table Mountain here in Cape Town to the density and pace of Hong Kong. Eloise has taken it upon herself to add another dimension to her existing and practical experience by taking on a four-month coding boot camp Going from novice to graduate in that time, she talks about the opportunity and the reasons she chose to adapt a skill set. She's also written a really insightful blog on those experiences and I'd really encourage you to read it. I'll, I'll be sure to share that piece with you in our Talking Transformation Twitter page. This episode is about trying to broaden the scope and the debate around what a contemporary built environment professional should be thinking about about how we can inform our decision-making, about what opportunities do exist. It isn't going to relegate the basics of being effective, you know, effective in terms of our communication or participation with civil society and often within a political space. This is about expanding the horizon and considering opportunities that some of us may not have even begun to think about. I hope you'll enjoy the episode and the perspectives kindly shared by these three top planners, top professionals at the top of their game. Enjoy the episode.
So it's a Tuesday afternoon and I'm here in downtown CBD Cape Town and I'm with Klaus Rava. Klaus, welcome. Welcome to the uh, Talking Transformation podcast and thanks for making some time available to this afternoon. Thanks, Pete. It's a great opportunity. So, Klaus, you and I, we've, we've known each other for about five years or more and uh, I was first aware of your your work when we met up in Midrand. At, uh, I think it was a spatial targeting workshop, if you remember remember quite well. And you were one of the first colleagues who I'd met who really challenged my perceptions and my understanding and the potential of using tech, technology, and in particular coding to support decision-making in the built environment. At that stage, very much in a sort of planning environment. Um, and you really pushed the boundary saying, you know, it's not enough just to be a good map maker and use GIS and have an idea about databases. It's really something that needs to go far beyond that. So I'm really interested to get a sense of what first interests you in this angle and the approach of using uh, different data science approaches to lead us down an evidence-based path. Uh, thanks, Pete. I think what's important from the get-go is to recognize, for my, in terms of my trajectory, um, my background is very much in the within the realm of humanities, of of uh, what what some call the the soft sciences. I wasn't even particularly good at maths in in high school, so I'm not necessarily coming from a, a strong quantitative background. Um, that's something that I've kind of developed over time. I think the question of coding and evidence based planning, coding in itself is from my perspective and from is a is merely a vehicle um, in order for us to almost rewire the way that we approach problems mm -hmm. it's not about the coding and the fact that nowadays coding is considered sexy in some circles at least uh, or that it's 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 exciting or these things in my mid-twenties, I was uh, doing an internship for the German development, Technical Development Agency, and my responsibility was trying to make sense of the efforts, not just by the South African Police Service, but by a whole raft of experts and academics, trying to get answer the question, how, what do, does the government and civil society need to do to prevent violence? Mm -hmm. And after six months of workshops, it became very clear to me that there is no forward movement. And the reason for that is that all the various parties at these conferences, one conference after another, were preoccupied with the question of what are the structural causes of, of, of violence in our society in South Africa. And what in 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 doing so they were approaching the problem purely from their own discrete theoretical background and their their professional discipline if you right. will and because of that and because of the time that they've invested in in that theoretical framework and that prism through which to observe society they were completely incapable of coming together and recognizing that actually it's not just about theorizing or theor theorizing it's actually about action there's a degree of urgency not just with violence but with the broader challenges facing our society the social and economic pathologies that absolutely requires a degree of urgency 
that some might call a, a focus, moving from formal to applied science. And okay. this is really what my interest in evidence-based planning was about. It was about saying, we can all write our PhDs on the causes of crime and the causes of urban inefficiencies and, and structural inequality, and that might engage us for many, many years. But we need to act immediately. We need to act within the short term. And to do so and to work together across disciplines, it is thus necessary to, to actually shift from trying to convince each other as to the underlying structural causes of what we're trying to address and move towards more proximate causes, looking, in other words, at patterns. Patterns in society, patterns in space, patterns in our economy, and, and those patterns not in terms of our discrete lenses, but patterns as, as, as suggested by looking at data. And so, for me, that was sort of a, a big light that went on in my mind to say, how do we bring all these different rafts of knowledge together in a dare I say, value-neutral kind of space so that we can actually act in the short term. Yeah, I would say that would be my kind of my, how I got into evidence-based planning. And, and, and things like dealing with complexity in the same way. I mean, often very different opinions, very different uh, starting points mm -hmm. and the ability to, to use sort of almost a neutral space um, to have some of those conversations. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe some thoughts on that? No, absolutely. I mean, I think uh, if, if one thinks about it in practical terms and, and the wonderful thing about the planning profession is that there really isn't a facet of society that is outside of our, out of our scope, out of our mandate, sure. in a sense. So if you think to yourself, if, 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 if we identify, if the data suggests that there's a particular uh, uh, location where there's a particularly high incidence of social violence, stabbing, etc., whatever the case may be. What has happened historically is that you would have one uh, professor saying, well, the causes are, is, the underlying cause is structural inequality, so you address that incidence of that by addressing structural factors. The psychologist would say, you have to look at the criminal trajectory and the criminal career. How did that person switch over from into criminality 20 years ago? Mm -hmm. You have the third person that might have a different theory on what the underlying reasons are. But you can, through patterns, actually disrupt those, those concentrations and those clusters in space. Uh, and then, in the long term, try to understand what those broader factors may be. Um, so yeah, and I think, I think I'd leave it at that for now, actually. Not 100%. Yeah. When you came into more of a sort of metropolitan planning environment, there were a number of sort of wicked challenges and problems that you were being asked to look at. Um, you know, how, how, how do you remember some of those uh, challenges and the approaches that you had to consider in, in trying to apply some of the, mm. the theory and the, uh, pr that sort of evidence-based thinking in Germany mm. uh, back in the South African context and mm. the challenges with a sort of metropolitan space uh, here in Cape Town? I think the first thing to be said is that it provided me this this notion of um, shifting from a, 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 a predominantly normative approach to planning uh, from that towards a perhaps a more evidence-based approach to planning is that it provided me with a, a framework um, to tackle some of these challenges that I was I was posed with one being how do we understand the space economy? How should we mm. understand 
why are some business precincts uh, failing while others are doing very well what are the spatial factors that are driving those changes and how can we then seek to understand the underlying causes for those patterns and so the the first task that i had the most important work that i did i believe at the city was exactly this question of what what can we how can we beneficiate the city's ever-expanding pool of administrative data mm. that it generates and typically casts aside as part of its process? How do you actually beneficiate this untapped resource in furtherance of understanding the economy in space? Having adopted an evidence-based approach, it already started to answer some questions for me. Firstly, by approaching an evidence-based approach, what that effectively requires is that there needs to be consensus on exactly what particular words, terms, and objectives mean. Mm, understood, yeah. How do you deconstruct something like, for example, spatial transformation? Mm -hmm. How do you uh, deconstruct integration? These words, and, and it's not unique to South Africa, this is part of our legacy of having adopted a lot of uh, continental European planning practices, this very normative approach to planning. So broad, undefined terms, the purpose of these terms are not necessarily to solve practical problems, but rather to make sure that everyone is in the same tent. Mm. So these terms are blank canvases upon which people with different interests and different aspirations can actually project their own aspirations onto this mm -hmm. and, and understanding onto this board. The problem is when you're actually having to intervene in a complex system, it doesn't then help that different actors seeking to come together to solve the problem all have different understandings of what these words mean. Yeah. And by introducing an evidence-based approach, you are forcing people to actually explain exactly what they mean. To, to break it down. To break it down and ideally break it down to as far as possible into measurable indicators. That to me, I have found, especially with the work that I did at the city, that is some of the most powerful, the powerful steps between identifying the problem, characterizing the problem, and then characterizing what, what, what is an alternative reality that we would like to achieve or an alternative state, because you have to define it in terms of measurable objectives. Didn't you find it interesting that, I mean, you'd see a lot of, institutions, um, blue chip companies looking at their own data sets. Um, I'm thinking of, uh, for example, South African Property Owners Association releasing on a quarterly basis a whole raft of uh, reports showing about office vacancies. And those become almost like the Bible for that particular time and period around a, a thought process or an understanding of a market, a, a sector of the economy. And yet the city um, or cities across the, the country have often been um, at odds with, in terms of putting out their own information, as you say, mm. big data, information around land use information, building plans, where is it happening, what's it mean, yeah. how does it start to influence the private sector yeah. and make and help everybody, whether it be the public sector or, or private with their decision making and where are you going to spend that very important rand at the end of the day, mm. choices. Uh, one of the things we recognized very early on, this project, by the way, that I'm referring to this program is called ECAMP, uh, which stands for Economic Areas Management Program. So we'll just refer to sure. ECAMP from ECAMP, now on. Yeah. But um, what, what we recognized fairly early on 
was that we have mentioned how this rich source pool of administrative data that gets mm. almost generated in real time and expands in real time um, has been largely untapped. There's a strong uh, lobbying happening countrywide about this metros pressuring national to release data. But I have not seen a willingness and dare I say the courage for municipalities to thoroughly beneficiate the data they do have access to because in order to beneficiate data you need to agree on definitions and to agree on definitions mean suddenly your catch-all terms that you were premising and justifying your interventions on become a lot more sticky okay um, so so but what I wanted to mention was that this ECAMP process we recognized that not only could it assist the city uh, uh, when I say the city, I mean uh, the, the plan is at the city of Cape Town and the very, uh, uh, to make better decisions and to actually test their own assumptions. But at least as important is the extent to which this data could be disseminated to business people, sure. to NGOs, to civil society, because at the end of the day, the cost of information is a, is a real cost, mm. which is incorporated into the investment decision. Yeah. And if we're talking about reducing the, if we want to unlock investment, if we want to stimulate job rich investment or whatever kind, it's essential that we look as a city, as local government at every opportunity that there is available to us to actually reduce those costs. Mm. And there is nothing that is as infinitely, well, it's effectively a zero cost to, to make that data available. Mm -hmm. So it's not as if it requires a significant investment on the side of the city. It just requires a mindset change that by making this data available, suddenly you are actually not only are you lowering the cost of the lowering effectively the risk of investment in the city, but you're also balancing the playing fields because currently or historically it's only the real big guys that could afford to uh, hire sort of or conduct bespoke studies on for example a market assessment where to build their next facility or their yeah. next depot whereas the smaller operators had to then kind of follow where the big guys went sure. but if you make this data available across the board you're actually leveling the playing field and this was very much brought out in a, in a 2008 OECD report, which actually said uh, uh, it was a territorial review of Cape mm. Town, of the functional region. And one of the top observations that this team made after a couple of months of looking at the city is recognizing that the city is so spread out that the normal, normal market signals, markets uh, and economies flourish based on how various actors and transactions happen in space and, and networks and, so and that's signaling that price clearing and that signaling and the networks all of those things serve to what they call agglomer one of the agglomeration benefits actually has a has a positive feedback loop into the economic trajectory of the city but if a city is too spread out and our city is is as everyone is aware extremely low density this the, 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 the econ uh, economic nodes are very spread out, that actually imposes a, a cost on, 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 the, on the functioning of the city uh, and of the economy. I mean, let's use a case in point. And, and I would argue that that cost 
just result, results in suboptimal decision making on the side of the, the where the businesses choose to locate because they can will only have knowledge of particular parts of the city and a lot of lo large sections of the city would be considered off the map sure yeah so you start to have an increasing concentration of economic activity in particular pockets that are well known well we've, se we've seen that here in Cape Town not so I think of the CBD Century City Tiger Valley probably yes. the big three that are, uh, that are the players yeah. in this space co currently and what we found was when we went with this eCamp thing and we put it on a public site and we made it available to potential investors they were actually they, they it blew their mind that they could now get information high quality locational information about business nodes which up to then were considered off the map european dragons yeah. whether it's philippi east or airport industrial or somerset west but so by just by providing that information you're opening up the whole board so to speak and i thought that was very powerful and so i think based on the feedback i've received this intervention that the city did at very little cost actually had a, a significant return on investment well, I think I think that's where that's where uh, I say the magic starts to happen when you start to get that reaction. So, the, the, so now in the private sector, Klaus, you're mm. having to, to rethink about some of your mm. your skills, the the, the challenges, mm. and the approaches that you can take mm. in terms of serving your clients um, in in a particular way. How are you thinking about upskilling and using technology and the whole question of you know we're five years on from mm. eCamp, for example. Mm. Where where is it taking you? Mm. eCamp was part of a journey for me in terms of realizing and, 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 and kind of finding out the hardware and, and I have to give credit where credit is due, the city giving me the, the space sure. to, to really bump my head on every branch on the way down, in the, so to speak. <laughs> How did you get in, on? <laughs> in terms of just the, the amount of work that was required to actually being able to access and to uh, collate all the disparate data sets across the city. And that was a, 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 a monumental task and Yaku, I'm sure, will also share some insights into what that entails. So eCamp was about how does one work with data within cities? It was perhaps, if for those of your listeners who might have a, some understanding of this, it was really a, 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 an exercise in, in descriptive uh, statistics uh, rather than predictive statistics uh, so there wasn't really a, a, a model in this uh, in a sort of a formal sense underlying the ecamp thing it was really just about business intelligence on a comparative basis although it did look at potential if I can remember correctly yeah? yes it, it it made some inferences but I wouldn't say that if you I don't think it's ready for uh, uh, a kind of <laughs> advanced mathematical <laughs> okay. journal so to speak where we've moved to subsequently is very very exciting stuff we i have had the the good fortune in uh working with the world bank in building urban simulation models so to start getting an idea of of what modeling entails when we start talking about predictive modeling and the power of models are just incredible and i think that i'm even though i might sound as if i'm sort of slavishly attached to the notion of smart cities and and, 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 and sophisticated models, I'm, I'm, I'm actually much more humble and practical in my view towards these things. I don't think they provide an answer, but what these models do is they force us to test our own assumptions. 
and that's really the power of models in my opinion it it not only forces you to collate information and to uh, put that together but we don't realize always whether we're planners or engineers the extent to which we rely on certain stylized facts from university or elsewhere without actually empirically testing it and seeing whether these stylized facts often emanating from context different to ours mm. whether they can actually be readily applied uh, or whether we actually need to test our thinking a little bit so that is in you asking me about the private sector this is the space that we're going into and and it's extremely exciting well we wish you all the best with it and uh, maybe if we if we asked you to look back in just one more time if you could go back and do it all again the whole learning approach would you in hindsight have done anything differently i mean i'm thinking of your time in berlin i'm thinking of your studies here in south africa what what would you have done different if anything what i would perhaps have done differently is i would have i would have <laughs> paid more attention at school actually especially standard seven where i started hanging out with a bad crowd instead of learning what the trinomial is <laughs> so that would be, be checking out google later <laughs> the trinomial i was hanging with the good guys <laughs> yeah so i think that was something i would have but i think in terms more broadly what's important is to not lose sight of the fact that you whomever we are we are representing a particular set of views i don't i know that it gets a lot of people's backs up and perhaps rightfully so that when when somebody comes into the room and declares that all our problems and all our challenges can be resolved through numbers i don't think that is the case Agreed. i think that yeah. i think that there is a unfortunately there's not enough of a evidence-based planning and evidence-based policy making isn't fully embedded in south africa and i think that it's not just a question of competence and capacity i think there are political reasons for that i think that we all agreed on certain nebulous terms of 25 years ago and now we've got to do the hard yards of actually disentangling those terms turning it, turning it into practical action and I think that's where our priorities are. For myself, I think I have, I've been driven by curiosity over all these years, and 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 that I, I thank my father for instilling, imbuing me with that with that thirst for knowledge and for learning. For myself, I think I wouldn't say I would take anything back, but you can come with the most uh, uh, convincing argument in your mind, but if you don't learn to listen to other people. And if, when you don't understand that the world isn't led by by fancy arguments, it's it's led at the end of the day partially by sentiment and and, and interpersonal um, connection. And so, I think that is something that I I would like to work on myself. Uh, I think that is for any aspirant professional. By the time you hit your mid thirties, you need to start focusing on. On, on, on the subtle nuances of how you engage others around you because numbers aren't in everything. On that note, Klaus, a, fi a, a final word for those young, for the aspirant, you're talking about the 30-somethings now. Uh, some of us have passed that a long time ago. Um, but for those who are starting out early in their career, who possibly listen to this podcast and trying to get a, 
a sense of opportunity and you know some of the the journey you've been on would seem like a, a miracle journey um, any word message of encouragement to that next generation of, of either activists or professionals who are out there trying to make a difference in their own space I would say that I would I absolutely love my job I love my profession one is dealing with something which is infinitely complex that's the city that is society so you will never ever get the better of it it will always get the better of you and there's something beautiful about that for those aspirant planners and professionals you're going to inevitably working in organizations at some point in your trajectory and I would just encourage you to break the rules we are planners we are generalists we have to find the common thread and the common purpose between specialists and optimizers around us so we need to make our voices heard and we mustn't be cowed by by bureaucracy on that note Klaus thank you so much for spending some time with us this afternoon all the very best with all your ventures and hopefully we get a chance to come back and have a chat in a, in a year or so's time find out how things are going your way all the best thank you very much Next up, we speak to Jaco Petze, part two of our Talking Transformation podcast, dealing specifically today with the whole question of upskilling in the built environment profession. Here's Jaco Petze. So it's a Wednesday afternoon. We're back in the CBD of uh, Cape Town, and I'm here this afternoon with Jaco Petze. Jaco, thank you very much for spending the time uh, this afternoon with us to, to reflect a bit on your career to date and some of the approaches that you've used um, in your career. You, in my mind, have a, a unique and a fascinating tale to tell about your professional journey from young private entrepreneur planner in the free state to one of the most respected planners in the country with a very much, I would believe, a, a specialism in the GIS and spatial data world. So welcome and thank you for allowing me to uh, talk to you about that journey. Thank you, Pete. Thank you for being here. Yako, when did the penny drop for you that an evidence base and using the data to tell a story and convince decision makers was the way to go? I think for me it started early um, when as a, as a consultant um, you um, had to um, submit applications to the, to the local government um, and to the authorities um, and you always would get questions um, about you know why why here um, did you provide uh, sufficiently in terms of social facilities um, can you see the development from from the road those those kind of things um, and I, I realized that you know it, it, it's it's a, a good thing to include those um, those answers beforehand um, and to, to have those um, those that, that evidence um, as a as a backup, um, so so we started to do things like um, capture geotechnical surveys, um, doing visual uh, visual impact assessments, um, and I think it also it's also for a, a benefit for the people who have to um, uh, make those decisions. You know, it helps you um, in in, uh, in just making a, a, a informed decision. When in that early early days of your career, working up in the Free State, did the penny drop for you that an evidence base and using data 
to convince decision makers was the way to go. I mean, I, I don't really understand how the free state was in those those early uh, early days for you, and um, what sort of environment was a positive, investment friendly, or whether it was quite a tough environment to to try and get decisions from the decision makers. Maybe you want to just reflect a bit on mm. on what you recall from that and how you went about your your business on the back of back of that. Um, I think I think it was. Um it was at some point it was difficult um, to to get decision makers to um, look at, at applications in a in an unbiased way. Mm -hmm. um, we're, we're not excluding personal feelings about things, um, and uh, and it was it was useful to to be able to to provide backing, um, especially you know in terms of images, um, data that you gathered in the field. Um, so things like, for example, at some point we um, we had to do a, a new policy for uh, leisure residential mm -hmm. developments, which is um, sectional titles in 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 farm um, you know, rural areas. So this is sort of quite quite a little luxury estate type it of development. A, it was a luxury estate type mm. of development, and uh, we were looking at coming up with with policy guidelines around the the sizes that would be permitted. And just from from that basis, for instance, you know, having a, a GIS system um, where you were able to uh, calculate average average um, sizes of, of farms in the free state. All of the farms in the free state. All of the farms in the free state. Oh. I mean, that's that's the beauty of wow. uh, of GIS, the, the fact that you can um, can do calculations um, at scale. So so that that provided a good um, a good approach and uh, convincing evidence mm. around what kind of um, ranges we were talking about. Also in terms of other applications, um, when you submit things, uh, questions were raised around uh, do we really need more retail in this area? Um, okay, the real retail studies and impact yes, studies, yeah. And things like um, uh, we not maybe not agree 100% with the floor area ratio that you provide, that you um, applying for. So in terms of that, it's useful to, to be able to, to back that with, with facts and um, you know, information gathered from, from surrounding properties. GIS affords you the opportunity to collect information um, at that scale um, and to reflect back on that information and to use it for other, for other purposes, other projects. So, um, so we started to, to, you know, when we now um, um, structural engineers and the geotech guys went out to the field, um, you would get record that information. So record the depth at which you, you hit rock and so on. Um, the location of those geotechs, um, even, even things like um, heritage impacts, impact assessments, um, where we would have a specialist going into the field mm. and we would record those um, the findings. Um, so you start having a, a, a database. I was going to say, you start to create your own database and that obviously starts to have its own inherent value, I guess, to yes. your clients and to be able to say, yes. you're not necessarily going to do it all over again. Yeah. No, I think, uh, I think in uh, looking back, I think um, the ability um, of, of um, you know, adding adding GIS and, and these databases in, in the back benefits. Um, I think the planning profession it, it benefits um, the client, and it's in in public interest at, at large. I mean, that's fantastic. It's a re really interesting to hear your reflection on that and the ability to start 
layering information and building building a building an argument between different disciplines as well. You've mentioned the, yes. the geotechs, the heritage, the planning, the cadastral base. I think that's yeah where the magic start would would start to happen. Was there a eureka moment for you in those early days? And, 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 you know, that moment where it's like, oh, I get it now. I really sort of, this is no longer just a, a value add to the client, but it's going to become a part of my, my career, my, my, my being as a, a professional. I think, I think it was more a, a, a sort of a journey um, you know, where um, you, start, you, start, you start using this information. Um, I think it actually went, went back a bit further uh, when, I, when I started um, uh, my studies. You know, those were those were sort of early days when um, you know yeah, I still had to go to the library, and uh, the only search facility there was the library search facility mm. is on catalogs, and um, and there there I read about um, decision support systems, um, and I was quite fascinated by that. But it was it sounded very theoretical, and things like <coughs> you know like the academics would use a lot. Mm. And then, uh, when I started my um, town planning uh, degree, uh, we were introduced to, to GIS, uh, first in, in ge geography and then in, in planning. And I knew that, you know, in planning, I would be using these tools. I would be right. using computers. Um, GIS would become an essential uh, part of it. And I, yeah, so, so through through the. I think professional development and you know the expansion of your skills and um, you know looking looking at um, shortcomings, uh, things things that you need to know in order to do your work better. Uh, I think I think it, it was a it was a journey. Um, the very first thing uh, that I used, I can't even remember the names. It was um, it was just a, a viewer. Um, I think. Uh, it was just for aerial photographs. Okay. I mean, way back, just the ability of um, you know being able to, to look at aerial photographs mm. as a as a backdrop to cadastral information was was something extremely valuable. So so that's where it started. And I, I recall a, a project, a product called uh, Small World. I think ArcGIS was in version 3.2 or something. Just we're now 10 point <laughs> something or 11. Yeah, 10 <laughs> 10 point six. So uh, lots, lots of access, um, Excel, mm. you know, those, those kind of um, kind of software. Six, seven years ago, you make the long journey south. You come down to Cape Town. Sort of any your thoughts, your expectations, your hopes and fears about moving from the rural free state into the urban Cape Town, very much the regional focus for the for the province, uh, has its own rural areas. But your, what were your expectations coming down from the Free State into the Western Cape and Cape Town? I, I didn't really really have any any expectations. I was uh, I was sort of waiting to see what what uh, what happens here. I think I think I was I was excited. Um, I was preparing myself for for the next step in, in my professional uh, career. Um, the job I just um, secured was, it felt like it was you know, precisely written for me in terms of the job specifications. Um, it gave me the ability to, to bring, bring to bear everything I've, I've uh, learned over the, the couple of years I've been working. I mean, if, if, if you look in terms of my, my job description, it involved spatial Spatial analysis, information management, um, mapping, research, 
Do you want to tell us a bit about some of those projects that have been keeping you busy? The projects, the programs, or the initiatives um, that have kept you busy since your arrival here in 2013? So, so some of the projects I've been working on are things like um, the identification of undeveloped and partially developed land. We were looking at um, identifying uh, transit um, accessible precincts, um, desertification priority areas, the, the, the spatial alignment of the capital budget, looking at um, infrastructure um, capacities and, and risk areas, and then I think the to, to me the biggest one of all was the was the land use um, modelling exercise that kicked off just after I started here, um, where that was in 2012. It is sort of on the back of a of a integrated public transport network um, uh, study that was that the study that the city was was commissioning, um, and um, they needed a, a land use land use base and a land use um, a future. You know, right. various various. Uh, possible futures. So understanding so understanding the the city as it was and what it was predicted to become yeah. through a very series of variables and yes. assumptions, right? Yes, exactly that. So it's a it's a, it's a number of assumptions, um, you know, visualizing what the what the future could be like in in, uh, um, in twenty years time, and then planning um, the public transportation to allow for various options um, going forward. And that, inf that information was also then used in other parts of, of, of the city uh, for other purposes as well, so for other infrastructure, for infrastructure planning. Yes, so, so I think those were, th those were the most important uh, projects I've, I've been working on. Just, just picking up again on that land use model, um, typically you're taking, um, I'm guessing, the sort of cadastral base of the city, which is a million or so cadastral units, and then starting to layer that with a whole series of assumptions around population, income groups, land use, zoning, valuation. Are we getting into the realms there of big data and how to start doing multi-million uh, millions of calculations. How how does that sort yeah. of work itself out? Yeah, that, that, I think that was that was my introduction to, to big data, and also understanding all those relationships between the data. Um, the the cadastral layer obviously forms forms the basis of, of everything, and then attached to to that you have your your land use, you have your your zoning, um, buildings, valuations. And each of those data sets um, are linked to, to the cadastral um, unit. Then uh, we, 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 we link people to buildings. And they, along the way, the, there are a number of assumptions. And then the, the whole um, object of the study was um, looking at movement patterns. S and, and then you start realizing the um, relationship between land use and transportation. Um, you know, those um, uh, the the way that land use, the mix of land use, um, and the intensities of land use pull people into into various areas. And you know, I, with the with the idea of um, then trying to see how I can optimize um, so, some of those those elements. You know, in terms of shortening travel times. Um, so it's it's something that goes both ways. You know, what can you do in the, on the land use side, and um, how does transportation respond to that?
typically what are the densities that we're looking at to try and support the transportation system? How, where, where are those areas that are most ripe for development? Where, where is it happening already? How does the formal play, how does the informal play in that space? Those are the sort of aspects that you're looking at, correct? Yes. So, um, in terms of in terms of a, of a land use um, response to, to transportation, you would want high intensity um, mixed use development around areas that are that are accessible to public transportation. It's a spatial targeting exercise, you know, f trying to find those um, those opportunities, and then trying to to make it easy to develop in those those areas and attract development. When I, when I come into the office in the morning, I've typically got PowerPoint, I've got Word open, and there's reports or power presentations that have been made, and typically taking data that you've uh, worked on and trying to put that into a, a way that we can represent and present it to the private sector, the public sector, the politicians, etc. Your screen never looks like mine. Why is that? Pete, I think, I think firstly it's because I have a, I have a dark theme. <laughs> oh, just <laughs> the theme. Yeah. <laughs> That's the one thing. Um, but I, I regularly use um, um, GIS, um, so there's always uh, been at least one, one GIS application open. And then on the other screen, I, I probably have uh, like an integrated development environment for um, uh, Python programming. You know, so during the course of the day, there's something that that you that you do script. Um, especially since you know f most of the GIS packages these days, um, you can you can use Python, the, the program language language there. Um, it makes things easier. Um, you have the ability of uh, automating um, elements of your work by automating, so you can save time. Yeah, you say if, if you find that you do the same thing more than twice, um, there must be a way of you know scripting that so so um, it becomes easier and automated. And I guess it also helps in repli replicating, not so whether you take a time yes. series of this this is the moment now in a year's time and two years time. Yes, I think I think it becomes important in things like um, monitoring and evaluation. You know where. Um, you need to to have reproducible results. Um, use the same the same data, the same methodology. Um, so so coding that, and you know, adding adding the necessary comments um, just helps you in um, yeah in in consistently reporting the same kind of information. Fantastic. I, I mean, I think your work is taking you into some quite interesting uh, collaborations, not just with built environment professionals like the transportation planners or the, the engineers that you've already talked about, but uh, I think you're also involved with some of the, uh, the applied mathematicians. Uh, can maybe just p pick up on some of the interesting collaborations you've had in, in, in going down this avenue. Yeah. Um, yes, I think uh, the, the first time we um, we worked with uh, mathematicians was um, when we tried to do a, a classification exercise. We were looking at uh, station typologies, um, and there are various ways of, of doing doing that. Um, and it was quite quite new. The data science mm. profession was was quite new. They specialised in that, and they they were able to you know we provided with them with information and domain knowledge, um, and they were able to. Um, to show us how classification works and how one would, from a data science perspective, look at you know planning data that you normally do not. And I think on on the back of that, we um, we had further collaborations with them um, 
in terms of some some very scary um, algorithms. Um, you know, the, the last one was a, a generative adversarial networks. Oh, one of those. Yes, I've come across <laughs> those often. Yes. <laughs> so, um, but uh, but I think I think as a as a as a planner, one one shouldn't be scared of those things. You know, rather see what those things can do for you. The um, merging of planning with uh, spatial an analysis with uh, GIS, and then the the data science component, it it forces you as a as a planner to think differently about things. Um, you know, and if you can apply it to your to your planning and your everyday work, um, I think it just um, enables you to make better decisions and to approach problems from from different perspectives. So, so where 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 uh, you know, I was always told that planning is is a is a very much a, a grey space um, that you know separates the grey a bit, and there are black and white elements, <laughs> things that you can measure. Talking of black and white, I think we have one of my my recollections of the the good people of the Applied Institute for Mathematical Science was one moment they were looking at uh, classifying black holes, the next moment we asked them to classify my city stations. <laughs> it was yes. an inter interesting yeah. <laughs> interesting change in scale and uh, an abstract thinking. Yes. Jaco, can you imagine a working world in your career, again in your space where you work, where you didn't have this tech available? I mean, you've, you've studied in a traditional way, a traditional university, a traditional planning profession. Uh, what if it, all of this that you come in, your grey screen, your grey theme with your Python script running, what if all that wasn't there? How do you think you, your, your, day, your day, your career would have panned out? Would it have kept you interested? I'm, I'd like to understand your thought process on that. I, I don't know. That's a, that's a difficult question. I cannot imagine um, a, a day without you know, all those, those tech tools. And I, yeah, I, I mean, if you come into the office, every, everybody is, is sitting behind a computer, you know, doing some sort of word processing or, or other analysis of, of um, you know, data. So uh, no, I, I cannot imagine something else. I, I think um, it's also something that that kept me interested in mm. in the planning profession. Um, I think planning planning is a is a. To some extent, a, a more generalist um, profession. You know, I was always told that planners are the the blue collar workers of the white collar workers. <laughs> um, so I think I think one um, you know being able to to bring in other other domain knowledge, um, being able to work transversely, um, and having all those tools um, at your disposal. You know, being able to to do spatial spatial an analysis. Um, um, just sort of set, set you apart. I, I cannot imagine a day without it. So an, ab an abacus and uh, an <laughs> and a basic planning theory book is not going to be enough to keep you <laughs> keep you going. Okay, Jaco, what advice do you have? I mean, you, you've touched you've touched on the you know, don't be afraid of some of the the naming conventions mm. and the jargon that is out there. Um, any any other sort of advice to either young or older uh, professionals or people who are working in advocacy groups? Um, who are starting out in this idea of either GIS, spatial data, uh, coding, all these fancy words, but, but ultimately trying to build a, an evidence base and build a knowledge base. Any 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 words of advice for for people starting out? I think as a as as a planner, if you're a planner working in the in the built environment, um, 
I, I cannot um, imagine you know, not being able to, to use GIS um, at least as a, as a tool and I'm not just talking about um, mapping you know visually displaying information um, I'm also talking about being able to, to do some analysis you know spatial analysis things like clustering you know where, where do you find um, certain certain things in, in space um, how do they cluster um, interpolation. There are there are certain things I think that um, as a as a um, built environment professional one one should be able to do, and GIS is, just extends your ability to do all of that. And uh, I think it also um, complements planning um, very well. Um, we we do think in terms of space, and that's the perfect tool to have. So so I would definitely say. Um, upskill in GIS um, that's definitely worthwhile and then if you if you're interested and so inclined um, add a programming um, language to that you know I'm, I'm using Python because it's um, it's uh, compatible with, with GIS it's fairly easy to learn it also you know, I, I used an home automation system as well so it's it's something that you use every day and it and it it does give you the ability to do things you otherwise would, would struggle with. Um, you know, Excel can only do so much, uh, especially if you start um, working with with more information. And if um, you know, there's that iterative process of you have to do something and take decisions along the way. It's ideal to have uh, a tool like that um, at your disposal. Jaco, you. You certainly embody that new wave of uh, professional thinking and the idea of reskilling and rethinking about things. Can I just get a sense of how you went about in those early days? Was it something that you went on courses? Was it something that you were self-taught? Is it this is a YouTube world, or how did you go about learning some of the basics? As far as the GI is concerned, um, when I uh, th that goes back a, a long way when I was still um, studying. I had the opportunity to um, to go on a GIS course with the uh, understanding that uh, I sort of had an agreement with, with the professors there that if I go on this course and bring back some of the knowledge and teach it to fellow students, you may have a, a student job there. <laughs> always, always an attractive proposition, <laughs> right? So, so that's where, so, so there, there was definitely um, some formal courses involved as far as the GIS is concerned and then um, I think I think one can really access a lot of information on, on Google, you know, just doing searches. I think it's, it's useful if you, if you have a project or something that you work on and you, you search to find answers, specific things. Um, um, as far as the, the, maybe the scripting and the coding is concerned, there are some basic things that you can that you can uh, teach yourself. But I think it's it's good to have a, 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 a question or a, a project um, that you're working on, and you want specific answers, and you want to know how to how to do something. You know, just go on Google, ask the right questions, and um, certainly that's uh, that's one of the ways that I taught myself. Thanks for sharing that, Yako. I, I think that's very useful, and uh, that that recognition that it's not only the formal, the informal way of teaching yourself is a, uh, a way of going about it. Uh, as you say, it probably does help if you're getting paid to do it at the beginning, however, <laughs> through varsity. I think a lot of the projects that you've worked on 
uh, in the city of Cape Town will serve uh, as legacy projects for many years to come. And you know what you've done, what you've achieved here in a relatively short period of time is, is remarkable. And, uh, and I thank you for, for the contribution you've made to the city and the intelligence uh, within, within the city and that the citizens get a benefit from. If it all ended tomorrow, for whatever reason, what would be the proudest achievement uh, in hindsight? I think I'm, I'm proud and fortunate to be able to, to work um, in this environment. To have been able to do the kind of, kind of work I, I have, I've been doing. To have met the people I've, I've met, um, I think when I started here, the quality of the people and the experience was quite intimidating, you know, coming from the free state. Um, so for, for a while my, my personal motto was up your game and I think that that served one, one well, um, you know, pushing yourself to, to limits. I think looking back probably the, the, the thing I was most pre prepared for in terms of my skills and my experience and also the, things that the thing I was most passionate about uh, and enjoyed the most was the, the land use modeling um, work, yeah, uh, it's still ongoing and uh, it's it's something that um, you know you, you understand you, you get and you, you feel you there's a you're making a contribution in in terms of um, you know understanding land use patterns um, I think from a from a from a sort of a city perspective um, the the land use is something that really forms the basis of um, most of the work that we that we do you know that's where you, you raise taxes. Um, that is where where uh, people reside, um, you know, where the buildings sit uh, for the for valuations. So <coughs> I always always uh, think that you know if if you understand buildings and you know land land parcels, say say land parcel, land buildings and uh, and land use and people, you know. So where where are the buildings? Where should they be? Um, where are the people? Where's the money? Um, I think you, you can you can do a lot with, with that information. That that I see as, a, as the, the base information that uh, that uh, you know planning is, is built on. Yako, I can't thank you enough for spending some time dragging yourself away from the Python scripting. Uh, wish you all the very best in the future, and hopefully we can touch base again in a year or so, see how things are going, and see what uh, what what new miracles you're working uh, on the PC there. Thank you very much for your time this afternoon. Thank you. Thank you. The third part, the third conversation we're having today on the Talking Transformation podcast is with Eloise Rousseau. Eloise is currently based in Hong Kong. So she'll talk first up about her experience there in Hong Kong, having lived there for a year. And then I'll talk a bit more about the boot camp, uh, the coding boot camp that she's been doing um, this last four months or so. Enjoy the third part of this Talking Transformation podcast. So it's a cold afternoon here in Cape Town, uh, and it's about two o'clock, uh, thousands of kilometers away to the east. I've got Eloise Rousseau on the line um, in Hong Kong. Eloise, how are you keeping? Are you well? I'm very well, thanks. It's about eight o'clock in the evening here. Unfortunately, not as cool as it is in Cape Town. It's quite humid <laughs> today, but very, very happy to be on the podcast. Well, really appreciate you taking time out from your weekend to come and have a chat with us. I think really what we had wanted to investigate and talk to you about was some of your insights on firstly Hong Kong, uh, how has that been in terms of a, a change in lifestyle and a change in, in, in place, and secondly this adventure that you've recently navigated, and, you know, given that today we're talking all about um, the whole question of 
coding and how we can utilize data, uh, spatial data and so forth to inform decision making. You've just recently been through a coding boot camp. Uh, so those are the two things, Hong Kong and the coding boot camp we'd like to chat to you about. Sure. So maybe let's start with Hong Kong. Um, I've been in Hong Kong for just about over a year, and I think the biggest adjustment is probably just coming to terms with with the density in the city. It's an absolutely vertical city. Uh, one of the tallest buildings in Hong Kong is a 118-story building, the International <laughs> Commerce Center. And the building I currently reside in is one of four residential towers. Each tower has got about 37 stories that sit on wow. top of a podium. And as I'm speaking to you, I'm currently in my apartment on the 31st floor, which means I'm about at the same height as the tallest building in Cape Town, which is Portside. And I think Portside clocks in at about 32 stories. And when I first arrived while I was hunting for an apartment, I saw many adverts describing developments comprising a couple of towers of about 11 stories each as low rise. So one of the first things (laughs) I had to do was... This complete recalibration of my definition of, of density. So that's been quite a big adjustment. But one of the amazing benefits of the density is the mass transit railway in Hong Kong. The MTR is really a fantastic and very affordable transport system. And I can't really think of any amenity that is not within walking distance from where I live. So in terms of convenience, it's, it's really an amazing place. Uh, but the convenience comes at a price because your space is also very limited and the sure. rental prices are extremely high. I mean, I mean, here in South Africa, I guess we typically talk about between 20 and 30 percent of household income would go towards accommodation. Uh, is it a similar thing there or is it quite a different uh, approach? No, it's, it, it's definitely a much higher proportion. I think it's one of the most expensive cities. Well, not the most expensive, one of the top 10 most expensive mm. cities to live in. And typically people spend a big proportion of their income on accommodation. And if you meet young people in Hong Kong, it's actually quite common to still live with their parents until they get married because it's just so unaffordable to pay for rent for an apartment on a single salary. Now, I can imagine that's quite, quite it must be quite a big deal in, uh, say, in terms of the whole sort of lifestyle and expectations and as young professionals, that idea it must, be, must, be, must be quite challenging. Yes, it's definitely a completely different context to Cape Town. And it's, it's interesting how the amount of private space has all these strange little impacts that you won't necessarily anticipate. So, for instance, one of the uh, one of the impacts that I didn't see coming is the impact of living in such a small apartment on my social life. So a big part of my social life in Cape Town related to hosting dinner parties, attending dinner parties. And Mm, mm. I guess it's a very South African idea of hospitality, kind of opening up your home. Um, And and that's quite difficult to do when you live in a really small space. So a lot of your social life gets played out um, in the city, not in a private space, but in public spaces. So, so, I mean, typically what does a Friday, Saturday evening look like in downtown Hong Kong? (laughs) <laughs> you're not in your apartment and you're not <laughs> at someone else's apartment. Yeah, people, it's, it's quite common here to eat out. So I think in South Africa, when you go out to dinner, it's typically a special occasion where here people dine out uh, as a functional means of mm-hmm. eating. So the, the restaurant scene is absolutely amazing and very diverse. Um, but yes, people don't spend a lot of time at home. 
Well, thanks for sharing some of those insights, uh, Louise. You've been there just, just over a year now, is that correct? Yes, correct. So, Eloise, when you look back at some of your contributions that you, you made here in Cape Town, uh, which are some of the aspects that you reflect on most fondly? And perhaps in the same uh, same reflection, you know, what were the learning challenges that came your way, the skills that you had to learn and, and develop uh, during uh, the time you were working? So I spent about eight years working in Cape Town with the city of Cape Town in three different departments. I started out in land use management, and then I moved to the spatial planning side of things, first working in district spatial planning at the district scale and then later on joining the metropolitan spatial planning team. And I think when you work in Cape Town, you've got a very strange professional context of one part of the city is really very developed and almost like a, a first world environment. And when you get to work in other parts of the city, it almost feels like a completely different context and a different set of rules applying. And a lot of the the challenges I found early on in my career is almost managing the ethical conflict for me, whether the same set of rules that apply to wealthy areas should also apply to Mm. poor areas whether the legislation that's been written with formal areas in mind should also be applied equally enthusiastically in in formal areas. And and it's a question that I haven't completely resolved because I think there's something to be said for keeping Cape Town and all its citizens to the same standard and for them as citizens to have similar expectations about service delivery. But often the, the problem seemed very obvious but this, the solutions were not. And mm. I often find myself quite frustrated being told, oh, we can't do certain things. So I think some of the most exciting work I was involved in in the city of Cape Town was usually around challenging the conventional way of doing things. And I think a lot of people see legislation and policies as this rule book or this static thing where the answer is either yes, you can do it, or no, you can't do it, where I think that that view of legislation is problematic, especially when the legislation and the policies are preventing you from addressing challenges that we all know we can't just leave them in perpetuity. They won't solve themselves. And achieving some of those outcomes and so forth, that uh, legislation and uh, redress demands, not so? Yes, I think it's uh, I think it's important as as planners to also take responsibility in in cases where policy and legislation is either not reflecting the current position or it's clearly not capable of of addressing the challenges to then lobby for those things to change because it's really a reflection of the time in which they were written. So yeah, I think th- that was probably some of the the most exciting. Work I did and the work I think of very fondly. <laughs> and in, in, in terms of the skills that you had to start thinking about, in terms of, you know, you get taught at, at, at tertiary education uh, a particular groove or rhythm around uh, approaches, um, and then in the practical world you need to start uh, thinking on your feet over and above the theory. Uh, how, how did you come to terms with some of those challenges and some of the skill sets that you started thinking, hold on a minute, maybe there are another, another way to, uh, to look at this? I think one of the challenges starting starting your career as a very young planner in the public sector is you're immediately thrown into the deep end and you find yourself in very contentious situations. So, for instance, when 
when I started working in land use, you were immediately in this environment of, you know, having to manage policy compliance with the aspirations of developers, with the aspirations of, of politicians. And I think being able to state your case clearly and convincingly was quite a challenge, especially when it wasn't backed with any kind of empirical evidence. So as I progressed in the city of Cape Town and as my paths crossed with people like Klaus and Yaku, um, who had developed these very exciting data-driven tools, I also realized that often it is very difficult to sell a certain approach when when you don't have the facts to mm. back it up. And I think in planning, even though we should be driven by facts, we are sometimes a little bit guilty of almost too much of our personality coming through in, in our ideas or maybe taking some creative liberties. Uh, I can think of examples where, you know, people would criticize the way in which the urban edge was delineated, saying, well, it's just an arbitrary line in this area. There's no specific logic behind it. Um, and I think when when you're the person having to defend policy positions like that, it, it really is challenging when there's not clear reasoning behind it. So, Eloise, I mean, your first tertiary qualification was in chemistry, and, and, and then you flipped the page to become an urban planner, quite a, a, a 180-degree turn in terms of career aspirations. Um, and even with that science background, when we first met, you never really struck me as the person um, who enjoyed the coding and the GIS. That was definitely not your thing. Yet here you are, looking at a new learning and reskilling path. And, I mean, congratulations on finishing uh, and graduating from the course. Love to hear more about uh, that and the road that you took in, in, in approaching that. Sure. Thank you very much, Pete. Um, yeah, I think I've got quite an interesting academic background or, or journey. Um, it took me a while to find my niche, and planning was definitely a passion of mine that I discovered a little bit later in life. But as you say, I've never been particularly interested in, in GIS or in technology, for, for that matter. I was very much drawn to the policy side of planning, so developing policy, being involved in spatial development plans. And, and part of the process of developing a spatial plan, it, that is an important component of it. So I think my my background gave me some comfort with numerical analysis, but I've never been particularly interested in technology. Um, I'm the last person to upgrade their cell phone. You know, it's, as you say, it's just, it's just not my thing. Working with Klaus and working with Yaku and seeing the kind of tools that they were developing and the way in which it, it empowered you as a planner to, to make your case, um, I just felt that I'd reached a level where, with my knowledge of Excel, I'd kind of reached a threshold of not being able to really engage with it as intensely as I would like to. And also just many of these tools were developed in Excel when really the data sets that, that were driving these tools were so enormous that I felt I spent so much energy, you know, just changing tabs, these mm, trillions of mm. tabs in Excel, just trying to find your way. And I was very inspired by Yaku, who's a self-taught coder, but also a brilliant planner. Um, and the way in which he was able to combine coding with GIS, mm. I felt really took the, the work of, of the metropolitan planning branch to, to the next level. Um, 
And I didn't want to miss out on that. And I started realizing that if you're a planner working in the public sector, and especially if you're working at a citywide scale with, with these big data sets, Excel was only going to get you so far. So when I relocated to Hong Kong, I had the opportunity to reskill or upskill myself. Um, and for me, it was a choice between learning Cantonese or Mandarin or mm-hmm. learning to code. <laughs> and I thought learning to code was the easier option. Um, and it, it, it seemed choice. like a, a, a good investment in a skill the same way if you and I look at job adverts today, no job advert is going to ask you for proficiency in Microsoft Word and PowerPoint and Excel. It's just assumed that that's part of your skill set. Um, and from a lot of my, right. yeah, a lot of, a lot of my reading indicated that there are a lot of thought leaders that are saying that coding is going to be one of those skills where it's not even seen as an inherent skill in a decade's time. It will be like, being able to use Excel, it's just a tool that you will need. So I think for me, the writing was on the wall, just seeing the, the scale of the data sets being worked with, and at the same time, seeing how immensely empowering it is when you can leverage data to make your point for certain policy positions. I, th- I think just to pick up on your point, uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, the state president in his recent State of the Nation address had talked about you know bringing introducing uh, coding into schools at quite an early uh, age of trying to get the, the national curricula to look at these things. So I think you're absolutely right that the, what was the norm maybe what the norm is now ten years ago is something different. As you say, Microsoft Office you're either good at or you know semi skilled at PowerPoint or Excel. Now, now those are just givens, and with the, the, that world, that expectation has changed. I think you're absolutely right. Who else did you find on 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 um, on the course? Who else was there with you? It was a very interesting mix of both local students as well as expats, such as myself. Mm-hmm. Um, the majority of the students had some kind of background, so they had either taken a coding course at university. We had one student with a computer science background. Likewise, we also had someone with an economics background, but then also a lot of really young students, you know, just excited to learn about coding and, and not yet established professionals still on their journey of, of skilling up to prepare themselves for the workforce. And not in my cohort, but uh, another cohort, I also met a lady who told me that she wants to learn to code because she's got two young children and they are going to learn coding in school and she wants to make sure that she can help them. So that was was a a very interesting approach or or reason for coding. And, you know, even in my building, I'll often see posters advertising coding camps for for Mm -hmm. children as young as three years. So there's definitely a sense in Hong Kong that, you know, coding is – an important skill to have in in the the market. Well, what 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 really impressed me was the the blog that you published. It was about a week ago. I think you did it through the LinkedIn platform, and the blog talk, talked about that experience and specifically highlighted four very practical things uh, that you learned. Can you maybe just reflect on those on those four things quickly? Um, sure. So I had the opportunity to write a blog um, for the the school through which I did the boot camp called Accelerate. They're an education startup based in Hong Kong. And my experience was 
quite intense. It's a very intensive four-month curriculum and coming into it with no prior background in coding. I just wanted to take some time to reflect on my experience and also share that uh, with anyone that's maybe considering learning to code but not sure if if they're up for it or unsure about what to expect. And I think the biggest mind shift for me was understanding that a bootcamp environment is fundamentally different from studying at university. So first of all, there's a big difference in the tempo of learning. The entire concept of a bootcamp is for it to be quite intense and immersive. So you spend a lot of time just coding in a very short period. So during our first week of coding, some of my classmates said this is what they, the, the material they would typically cover in a semester. So mm-hmm. it, it can be quite overwhelming, the workload. But whereas my education from a tertiary background was very much around understanding the concept behind things before practically applying the knowledge, the bootcamp almost had a reverse environment where you were encouraged to experiment very early on And then through your experimentation, when you encounter challenges, you would need to read to try and find a way of solving those challenges. And I was very skeptical of this of this approach in the beginning, because, you know, as a planner, we're kind of taught about the risk of intervening in situations where you don't understand the context. So I can think of a million examples of a bad idea of intervening in the built environment where things really didn't go according to plan because you didn't understand enough beforehand. So I guess I have quite a cautious approach to (laughs) to being practical. And as planners, some of us, you know, we never get more practical than writing the policy document. So I was quite hesitant, hesitant with this learning philosophy and in the blog, I write about how all my classmates were, were coding and I was sitting there reading my academic papers, <laughs> trying to understand the details of, of the algorithms. And I got to a point where I just felt completely overwhelmed by the theory and where I realized that there's a fundamental difference between people developing these algorithms, which are generally people with PhDs in mathematics or statistics, and people using the algorithms. And there was no expectation for me to understand absolutely everything about the mathematics behind the algorithm. I just need to be able to use it in a responsible way. So definitely my my learning took a turn for for the better once I stopped reading so much and actually just try working with these tools. And yeah, I think that's definitely an approach that I would encourage other people, especially coming from a very theoretical background, Mm -hmm. Even if it feels counterintuitive, just force yourself to, to, to experiment as much as you can and gain practical experience and not to get lost in the theory because it can be quite overwhelming, but there is no expectation of you to have a full theoretical understanding before being allowed to use these mm. technologies. I mean, what a fantastic lesson, sort of life lesson almost, of, again, changing the approach fundamentally, changing what you've been comfortable with in, in all of your studies that have gone beforehand and really challenging that convention and saying there is another way and don't be, don't be afraid of it. Yes, I, I actually found this, uh, this environment to be really quite open. I guess there's always been something elitist about tertiary education and I made the comment that sometimes I felt like 
a little medical intern on my first day of, <laughs> of studying medicine and this world famous brain surgeon is handing me, you know, a newly developed scalpel saying, do you want to have a go at that patient's brain? Like, just give it a try. And I kept feeling like this is irresponsible. You know, people can die. I should study for another six years and only then I'm allowed to, to touch the scalpel. And um, the, the, the wonderful thing about this industry is a lot of the technologies and a lot of the algorithms they're so accessible. So the barriers to entry of using these amazing technological um, inventions are actually surprisingly low. And when you learn to code in Python, one of the benefits of Python is that there are so many libraries that you can use in Python that makes it really easy to use these super sophisticated tools. So that was a big, uh, a big mindset change I had to make. And it's also actually quite wonderful to think that no matter where you are in the world, if you've got an internet connection and if you're willing to put in the time, you can learn to code and you can use these very elaborate and impressive algorithms without ever going to a university. And just to be just to be clear here, when you talk about the libraries, we're talking about online libraries of uh, Python code, right? Yes, so it, a library is typically something you would install and then it, it just enables the use of the algorithm in Python um, much easier. What, what is coding? What, what, what is that as a principle? For somebody who is listening to this for the first time and saying, yeah, I keep hearing about this coding thing, but I have no idea what it is. How, how would you go about describing it in its most simple, simplest of terms? Coding is a language, so similar to uh, you know, the English language, which has got syntax and grammar. It's a computer programming language, and there are many, many languages out there. Uh, and different people have different preferences, but Python is one of the uh, most common coding languages, and it's also considered one of the easiest coding languages to learn. So any person interested in data science would generally be encouraged to learn to code in Python. So it's a right. computer programming language. And, and typically, the, the Python is also quite uh, compatible with the with, with the sort of GIS world and GS environment that typically we'd be involved in. Not so. Correct. For a novice or a skeptic, the listener who is just saying absolutely no way, uh, this is not for me. Uh, do you have any message for them? Maybe. I, I, I guess it's not right for everyone. I, I, I would get that, but. For those like me, I've just uh, signed up for my own uh, sort of two two month uh, boot camp. Um, for those who are wavering and, st on, and starting out, what are the words of encouragement that you might have for them? So I'm a little bit skeptical of saying every planner needs to learn to code. I, mm. uh, one thing I do feel quite strongly about is that the my generation. The, the days of going to university and obtaining a degree and you know, having having a feeling that you're now from an education and learning perspective, you're set for life. Those days are over. So mm. whether it's coding, I'm not sure. But my sense is that it's important not to become complacent about your skill set. And as a mid-career professional that has just been through the process, I can tell you that it's quite humbling. It, it's like learning a new language from scratch. So often it can be quite discouraging or you can feel you know, really stupid and ask yourself, well, you know, I'm I'm so established in my career or I'm so confident in, in these other professional areas. Why should I struggle like this? And I really think the world is changing in a way where it's it's impossible to skill 
and to expect that skill to just remain relevant in perpetuity or at least until retirement age. I think it's important for everyone that has still got, you know, a good 30 or 40 years of, of working mm. left to, to be aware that it's important to have a learning mindset and the, the, the lessons that we've been taught and the skills that we have, it's unlikely going to serve us until retirement. So for me, there's a stick and a carrot approach. So you can either learn to code because you're worried about becoming irrelevant, or you can see it as an opportunity to better yourself and to have access to, to greater tools that whether you're a lawyer or a financier or a journalist, I think any professional person will find that there's just more data around them mm-hmm. and the, the abilities of programs like Excel to, to deal with that data is, is limited compared to coding. Yeah, so I, I, I'm a little bit hesitant to say, you know, this is the answer, learn to code and use sure, it for I life. It's more about realize that you will probably be challenged during your career to, to learn a new skill and for you to stay learning fit. It, it's very important not to become too set in your ways or too too much stuck in a comfort zone. So, you know, whether it's coding or not, it's about being open and being flexible and being willing to learn continuously. And I've just finished this, this boot camp and in the four months that it took me, there are probably a lot of things that I've learned that's now already out of date. You know, that that is the tempo of change in in this industry. I think what the other thing that you know, I, I'm observing from the outside looking in is it takes a lot of courage and commitment to 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 try uh, something different and to recognise the need to adapt. And again, as I say, I'm absolutely thrilled for you. I really am delighted that you've you've taken this approach and uh, look forward to seeing how it plays itself out in the in the years to come or the months to come uh, as you're looking at different options and opportunities there in in Hong Kong or further afield. I mean, Thank one you very question. much, Pete. Where to next for you in terms of your own personal uh, learning adventures, Eloise? Any thoughts about what you'd like to do or what uh, you're looking at right now? So I've always been a little bit of a tech skeptic. I think I'm quite an old school planner. I find something very romantic about bump paper <laughs> and, you know, tracing maps. And I'm I'm quite adamant that there's still an element of art to planning and to creating amazing cities. It's not just a number crunching game. Sure. Um, so I'm very, I'm very interested in, in this interface between technology and city making. And now that I've got a better understanding of some of the technologies that are being used in smart cities proposals, um, one of my areas of interest is really looking at how do we enable planners to participate in that conversation, especially because a lot of the technological advances are happening so quickly that there's really no time for the policy and the legislation to catch up. So I think that's an area where I hope to get more involved in. Louise, well, I really want to thank you for spending some time with us. I think you've really shared a, a very creative and uh, impressive journey there. Thank you for your time. All the very best uh, with what comes uh, in the future. And enjoy the rest of your time in Hong Kong. Thank you very much, Pete. And it's a pleasure talking to you. Get involved, get informed, most importantly, get subscribed. You can find us on our Twitter feed at Talking Transfo and the number one. That's Talking Transfo One.
Talking Transformations music, kindly supplied by Tribal Need. Find them at tribalneed.com.